Good morning, this is Pastor Patrick Hines, and I am here on a gloriously beautiful morning uh, at Duck Island at Warriors Path State Park, which is on my way to church, sort of. Um, I used to come here uh, a lot uh, when I first moved to Tennessee. I'm going to start stopping by here now that the weather's getting nicer. And I'm going to do some, some podcasting and uh, some devotional stuff from here because it's just beautiful. I'm sitting here at a little pine tree grove, and just let me give you the lay of the land here. There's a Lake Fort Patrick Henry there, and there's the pine trees and stuff, and there's a little shelter up there, and uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful place. But they call this um, Duck Island. It really probably should be called Canadian Goose Island. There are some ducks here, but there's Canadian geese, a lot more Canadian geese uh, that you can see. And uh, when the Canadian geese aren't actually here, you can see that they've been here. And uh, y'all know what I'm talking about. Uh, I remember when it was rare to see a Canadian goose. But now they're everywhere. And uh, they're beautiful creatures. But they sure do make a mess. Anyway, uh, this morning I wanted to read some of Psalm 51. And Psalm 51 is uh, what I, I've actually preached through this psalm uh, before. And uh, actually the uh, those sermons I edited and converted into chapters of uh, the book that I just put out. Uh, called Am I Right With God? Because when you emphasize that we're justified before God by faith in Christ alone, which we are, faith apart from works, faith apart from deeds of righteousness that we do, faith apart from law, faith apart from works of law, I'm trying to think of every expression that the New Testament uses, that by the observance of law no flesh shall be justified, for by the law is the knowledge of sin, but the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith um, in the gospel. And so the righteousness by which we get into heaven has no reference of any kind to our works, uh, our piety, our intentions, our motives, our pursuing of holiness or, or anything like that. And when the gospel of free grace is preached, as it was by the Apostle Paul and by the Christian church through the centuries, it has always elicited the same charge. The charge is always that you are an antinomium, that you're in fact preaching that people can um, sin all they want and still go to heaven. Um, and of course, scripture does not teach this because God grants repentance and God grants that uh, the sinner will recognize their sin and despise their sin and turn from sin, uh, never perfectly in this life, but there's no such thing as a Christian uh, who is not repentant. There's no such thing as a true justified uh, Christian who has not been born again, who does not have a new heart. And people have asked, uh, you know, what is the, uh, the how does repentance work and how much repentance do you have to have to go to heaven and uh, how how does repentance and sanctification and good works how does all that play into the uh, christian life and you want to understand the depths of true repentance uh, psalm 32 is a great psalm uh, but psalm 51 to me is is the true portrait of repentance so i'm going to go ahead and read a little bit of this and just comment uh, phrase by phrase as we as we go through it here because if you want to understand what goes on in the heart of a true believer, a true believer doesn't look to the gospel and say, okay, good, good, cool. I get to go to heaven and uh, I'm just going to you know, go do, just continue on in sin and, and do whatever I want and uh, whatever sin I want to engage in, I don't care. That's not what happens in the heart of a true Christian. Psalm 51 is a portal, a portrait of what true repentance looks like in the heart of every person. Even a covenant child that was saved at a very young age and doesn't, doesn't remember being converted, um, they know exactly what this is talking about. So let's look at, at Psalm 51. 
And always remember when you're reading the Psalms that the superscripts are part of the Hebrew text. They're actually part of the inspired scripture. Now the headings that are supplied by translators are, are not inspired, obviously. Um, but the superscripts are part of the, the text of scripture. To the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Okay, so right away, this is uh, what David wrote after Nathan the prophet um, rebuked him. And that's a, a very moving passage. In fact, we probably should, should start there, as I recall, that Second Samuel um, chapter 12 uh, is where... Um, yeah, is where Nathan comes to uh, to David. Let, let's go ahead and read this first, and then you'll see uh, Psalm 51 is, is David's uh, response to this rather savage rebuke. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. This is 2 Samuel 12, verse 1. And he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he brought, which he had bought, and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man, who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Isn't that heartbreaking? <laughs> Just think, what a terrible story. Here you have a, a poor man who has a you know, a little lamb that he decides to make a pet. And, you know, he loves this little lamb. And, you know, pets are, are wonderful. You know, we, we've always had dogs and cats and birds and hamsters, rabbits, um, mice, and uh, fish. Yeah, we've had it. My house is kind of like Noah's Ark. But this poor man has this one little lamb that he raised up and he treats it like a daughter. He doesn't have any other possessions or livestock or anything, but the rich man, he won't take from his many, many, many flocks uh, to prepare for this wayfaring guy. He takes this guy's little little pet lamb. That's terrible. What a horrible story. Verse 5, so David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. Isn't that, hit him right in the heart, David. You are the rich man who took the poor man's lamb and killed it. You are the man, thus says the Lord God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would also have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You know, and that's God's word to all believers when we commit sin. When we who are indwelt by the Spirit, born again by God's Spirit, and have been justified and saved and set apart for God's purposes, why have we despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Nathan says, you have killed Uriah the Hittite with the, the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. 
and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the son. And of course, that's a reference to who? Absalom. Absalom, his son Absalom, that tries to take over the kingdom and probably would have killed David if he, if he could have. But he's the one who sleeps with David's concubines in plain view of all. And then Nathan continues there, For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the son. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. Rough day. But David had committed a long string of egregious sins and had been unwilling to repent of them or even acknowledge them for quite some time at that point. You know, it had been a long time. Month after month had gone by and David just kind of pretending like nothing's wrong. Nothing had happened. So after this, David finally says it, as I just read to you, I have sinned against Yahweh. So here's what happens in the heart of a true believer. This is what true repentance looks like. And there is no Christian uh, of, about whom this is not true to some extent. They, this is how they think in their hearts. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. All you can do is cry out for mercy. Have mercy on me, O God. That's in the Vulgate, Kyrie eleison. Have mercy upon me. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. According to your loving kindness, and there's that beautiful Hebrew word, chesed, chesed, the, according to your covenant faithfulness, according to your promise of grace. That's all I've got. Lord, please show me mercy. There's no sacrifice that we can bring. There's no reparation that we can make. All we can do is throw ourselves upon the mercy of God. And thankfully, he has the perfect basis upon which to show us mercy. And that is the blood and the righteousness of his son. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Blot them out. I always think of, you know, uh, a black permanent marker where uh, in documents that you see, things are, are edited out, that they're just, they're written over with that permanent black marker to block out those words. And think of your life as a, a list of sins, you know, that could be charged against you. But once those sins are charged against Jesus Christ at the cross, they're blotted out. The, the black permanent divine marker blots them out and they can never be charged against us again. And then he asks in verse two, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And my dad used the illustration once. He, he told me that um, the dirtiest he has ever felt in his entire life, he was in Vietnam. And because of constantly moving around, probably because they're they getting mortared and shelled and attacked and things like that, he was not able to take a shower for nine days. And he said he just felt terrible. He just felt so filthy and wanted so badly to take a hot shower with a, a bar of soap and, and get himself clean. And he used this, this illustration. He said, I took my fingernails and raked them across the back of my neck and my fingernails were just filled with gunk. You know, dead skin cells and dirt and dried sweat from nine days. And boy, he wanted to be washed. And he said, that's kind of the way sin is. You, you think you're okay until the spirit of God convicts you and then you realize how 
filthy you are. You realize how dirty you really are. And then you cry out to God, wash me of all of this. Wash this stuff away. Wash all that sin and, and guilt and iniquity away. Cleanse me from my sin. You know, it's one thing to be physically dirty and to need a shower and to, to be filthy, gross and things like that. But it's a whole different ball game when you recognize I've got something much worse than dirt that I need to be cleansed from. And it's guilt and it's evil in my heart and it's the wicked things that I have done in my life. I need to be cleansed from them. You see, this is the way all true believers think. They all do this. All true believers think this way. So the idea that someone could be a real Christian and not be repentant like this is impossible. This is the portrait of what goes on in the heart of true believers. Verse 3, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. There's a verse that American culture really needs to hear today. Because we are a nation of blame shifters and victims. No matter what, people think they're victims today. And it's just pitiful. It's just pitiful. We are not victims, we're criminals. We're not the victims of, when we commit sin, we are guilty. Now, there are people who are true victims. I have been the victim of other people's sin. And you know what? Others have been victims of my sin. But when we commit sin, we're not victims. So that's the thing I hope that you'll see here. When we sin, we are not victims. And we can't say, well, my upbringing made me do this. Or I have a predisposition towards this or, or towards that. When we sin, we are guilty. And our only recourse is this. I acknowledge my transgressions. There's no special pleading. There's no blubbering here, no bribe attempts, no attempt to soft pedal it, no attempt to take the edge off by, but I was treated this way, or this happened to me, or I've got this condition. When we sin, it's our fault. It's no one's fault but ours. I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. It's a hard thing to acknowledge. You know, you think about, you know, my precious wife and I are coming up on our 26th wedding anniversary. 26 years it'll be uh, in March, uh, March 22nd. And I just think it's one of the toughest parts about being married is when you do sin is to go to the other, you know, I, um, I make no excuses for this and um, I'm not going to say, but you did this, 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 and this. It's, I sinned and I, because I'm selfish. <laughs> Because I, I chose to sin, chose to do this. It's wrong. It's wrong of me. Please forgive me. But you both do that together. If married couples do that together, things work really well. Um, if one is never willing to do that, you're going to have problems. You've got to acknowledge your sins. And you have to acknowledge them as sin, as evil. Not as, I have an excuse for this or an excuse for that. Or this is only partially my fault. Or you get a bunch of pot shots in before you say that. David doesn't do that here. He just acknowledges the sin. And then that great verse against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Now that's a, um, a hyperbolic way of saying because David had sinned against Uriah by you know, murdering him as well as not, it wasn't just Uriah. There was a bunch of other soldiers that were killed too in that foolish attack on that walled city. And they knew there, a bunch of people were going to get killed. Uh, David was guilty of their bloodshed. 
David was guilty of that. And he was guilty of sinning against Bathsheba, sinning against uh, his country, all the people in his country, because he was the king. But ultimately, ultimately, it was against God. Just like all of our sin. When we sin against other people, ultimately we're wronging and blaspheming God, especially true believers in Jesus Christ, because we sin against grace. <laughs> the unbeliever is sinning against God, but you know our sins, it, it was, uh, I believe it was Thomas Watson in his book um, on repentance, I think it was that book. Uh, I've been listening to a bunch of books on Audible and there's so many great quotations, but he makes the statement, our sins are worse than the sins of demons because we sin against grace. We sin against the blood of Christ by which we've been forgiven. So our sins are, are elevated in that sense. Always forgiven, of course, by the blood of Christ. And Jesus died for the sins of Christians too. Of course, if he didn't, no, no one would be saved. But it's against God, against you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. And that, that's a hard thing to say that. What I did was evil by mistreat, uh, somebody, it's because I, I did evil. Because I, I am evil. And I have evil in my heart still, <laughs> as a, even as a Christian. That you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. You know, I used to wonder what that means. Why is that there? Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. That you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Because people are always looking for a way to get out of facing the reality that they're sinners. God is just when he condemns us as sinners. God is blameless when he judges us. We can't make any excuses. And that's what people are constantly trying to do today. Is this is the reason I did this. This is the reason I did that. And it's like, no, the reason we did something evil is because we choose to do evil. And we're responsible for that. <clears throat> David laments this in the next verses, verse 5 and 6. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin, my mother conceived me. He's not talking about, uh, you know, he wasn't born of fornication or anything like that. He's not saying there was any sin in his um, mom and dad or anything like that. It's he has been a sinner from conception. From the moment he was conceived, he was in sin. And dear ones, this is, this is why we have to be justified by someone else's righteousness. Because the only righteousness that can meet God's holiness and the requirement of God's holiness is a righteousness that begins perfect and stays perfect throughout the course of the whole life. That's why as soon as Adam ate from the forbidden fruit, getting into heaven to any degree by our, our works ceased to be possible. Can't, you can't, it can't happen anymore because we'd have to start out sinless. That's why the virgin birth is necessary. That's why Jesus cannot have a human father. He's got to start out like the first Adam did because none of us do. All of us start out in sin. The instant we're conceived, salvation by works is impossible. And that's why the virgin birth is such an important point. I remember reading that sermon, that horrible sermon by Harry Emerson Fosdick, who says, you know, do we have to really subscribe to any particular theory of the virgin birth, which is code, by the way, for can't we disbelieve it and still be Christians? No. If you have a Christ, if you have a Jesus who was not conceived and born of a virgin, then you have a sinful Savior that can't save you. Because we're conceived in sin, our Savior can't be conceived in sin. He's got to be conceived without a human father. He's got to come into the world like the first Adam did. Except succeed, which, praise God, he did. Because we're conceived in sin. And then verse 6, Behold, 
you desire truth in the inward parts. And in the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom. That's beautiful. That's, that's what a true believer desires. I want to be godly in the, in the innermost part of, of who I am. I desire to be truthful in the inner part. Not, not just to appear that way to others, but to really be truthful. To really be godly in the, the inner sanctuary of my heart and my mind and my highest affections. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. That's a great illustration. If when we sin as Christians, the joy is just gone. And that's a good illustration of conviction from the Holy Spirit. He breaks our bones, just crushes us. And, and rightly so. And we pray, Lord, make me hear joy and gladness again. Restore to me that joy and gladness that I once had when I was walking with you blamelessly and not going off into my besetting sins. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Lord, I want to have a heart that's clean. I'm tired of my heart drifting into the gutter, drifting into places it shouldn't go. I'm tired of my mind and my affections being divided between godly things and holy things and wickedness that I so often still want to go to. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. That's a great, great prayer request. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Give me firm attachment to holiness. Make me steadfast, immovable in my desire for personal holiness. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. So as Old Testament believers, they were indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's ministry is certainly intensified in the New Testament, but they did have the Holy Spirit. And of course, the Holy Spirit never will truly leave a true believer, but he still, he understands he's under God's disciplinary hand and he's praying, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. There again, just like he said earlier in verse uh, 8, make me hear joy and gladness. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me by your generous spirit. See, David realizes every day that I'm holy, every day that I don't commit adultery, every day that I don't go off into gross sin, it's because God upholds me. I think that's what should make all of us tremble. Because there's really nothing that we're not capable of doing. Given the right circumstances and the right stresses and the right hardships, maybe key betrayals from key people in our life would really lower our defenses against who knows what kind of sin. Uphold me by your generous spirit. It's God. God is the one who leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. And so we pray for that. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. The person who is freshly forgiven, freshly restored, understands the fullness of divine mercy 
those people are unstoppable when it comes to evangelism. <laughs> and, and they'll be contagious uh, about wanting transgressors to know the forgiveness of God that they know. And yet, even in our Christian lives, we stumble along and we, we have these seasons of, of doubt, seasons of struggle, uh, seasons where we're really pushed, we're really tested, and we feel useless to God. We feel useless. Like, I, who am I to talk about the gospel and the joy? I don't have any joy. You know, I fell into one of my besetting sins again, so how am I going to teach transgressors your ways? Well, when God restores the joy of our salvation, then we, we will again. Verse 14 and here, verse 14 is key because here he's acknowledging a, a clear, specific sin. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, oh God. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed. David was a murderer. David murdered people. You think the, the majority of, of human beings have never conspired to kill someone or never have actually killed someone. But David did. David carried that for the rest of his life, that he had murdered you know Bathsheba's husband you know they were and they were married um, all the way up until David died Bathsheba was there I mean what a, a constant reminder of what he did so he's praying deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed <clears throat> oh God sometimes we we have sins that we committed we know we're forgiven of them but the effects reverberate for years and years and years and that's why it's always better just don't do it <laughs> just don't do it Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. <clears throat> o Lord, open my lips. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> my mouth shall show forth your praise. See, the person who's forgiven, who has that joy restored, they will worship. They will worship and worship and worship. Praise God. For you do not de desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. If you've never experienced a broken heart, never been contrite it, over your sin, have never had that moment where you just kind of bury your, your face into your hands, Lord, how can I be like this? How could I do this? How can I sin in the ways that I do? I would worry about you because the sacrifices of God are not I went to church and I, I tithed this much or I, I made these sacrifices for the Lord. The only sacrifice he asks of us is to have a heart that's broken over sin. And he's the one who grants that to us. God grants repentance. 2 Timothy 2.25 says, God grants repentance. He grants that contrite heart, that broken heart, that broken spirit. And then verse 18 and 19 is wonderful because really what, once a person is really restored and forgiven and they understand God has been merciful to them and forgiven them. They will, they will desire the church of God to prosper and thrive in the world. You see, you remember Nathan giving God's word to David, said, David, because you have given great occasion to my enemies to blaspheme me. Not because you committed adultery and murder. Yes, that, that's, that's why you did this. But the real issue was David had given the enemies of the Lord an opportunity to blaspheme him by sinning like this. He made the church look bad. He made God look bad. Once you're restored and you're forgiven and you understand the grace of God, you pray for the church. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Lord, let your church thrive in the world. Let it be a beacon of truth and righteousness and mercy and grace. 
Let the people that see Christians know that you are the God who saves and sanctifies people and changes them and restores them and forgives them and blesses them. Verse 19, then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. Of course, a bull was the most expensive offering that you could give unto God. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Make the church thrive again. Lord, I'm sorry that it's looked bad because of me, is really what David is saying here. But build the walls of it again. Build the walls of Jerusalem like Nehemiah did. Build the temple. Build up pulpits. Raise up men for gospel ministry. Let the gospel and the truth of your sovereign grace be heard again. Let it humble the world again. Let it grant repentance to the lost and faith in Jesus. This is a portrait of repentance. This is what goes on in the heart of every true believer. And when people say, well, if you preach this freeness of justification by faith alone, it's going to lead to antinomianism. I say, may it never be. It can't. How shall we who died to sin live in it any longer? How shall we who died to sin live in it any longer? How shall those who have been granted repentance by God not be repentant? Whew, well, it's just beautiful out here. Well, I need to head on over to church and get cracking on my, uh, my sermon. But... Uh, We'll hopefully do do some more of these, but um, thank you all for watching or for listening.